Your mental and emotional health matter. And when you take care of this part of you, especially in these uncertain times, yes, especially now, the positive effect can uplift your life across the board. It has for us. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code MYTHS to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's MYTHS and Talkspace.com. Today's show is sponsored by Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial free streaming service rooted in British television. Everything on Acorn TV is cleverly written and visually striking. Plus, you can try it for free for 30 days. From both of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code LEGENDS to get your first 30 days for free. Quick disclaimer this week, there's a bit more graphic violence than usual and a mention of sexual assault. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the story of the Odyssey, complete with mosquito mattresses, naked volleyball, and a godly staff meeting. The creatures this week are little hairy guys who just want to have a beer with you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 220B, Lonely Island. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, 18-ish-year-old Telemachus, son of Odysseus, was having a hard time because a bunch of guys wanted to marry his mom. And they were camped out in his front yard, drinking his wine and eating his sheep. And they would stay there until that happened. He snuck out with the help of Athena in the form of the elderly mentor and sailed for Pylos, the home of Nestor, one of his dad's war buddies, to see what he could find out about Odysseus's fate. A few months earlier, Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, entered the palace of his mom, who had murdered his dad, with the intent of killing both her and Aegisthus, her lover, knowing that the consequences of doing so might be worse than the guilt of letting it go. Meanwhile, Odysseus was imprisoned with Calypso, a nymph who rescued him after a ship wrecked, only to keep him as her prisoner and non-consensual partner for seven years. We'll jump in with Telemachus, son of Odysseus, at Nestor's kingdom, hearing something that anyone who has talked to Nestor has heard countless times before. I used to be an Argonaut, you know, Nestor told Telemachus, son of Odysseus. Telemachus took another sip of his drink. Oh, really? Telemachus hadn't heard that. In the last hour, he mumbled under his breath. What was that? King Nestor asked. Oh, uh, must have been an honor. The king grinned. Yeah, for them. But he said he didn't know what happened to Telemachus's dad. And Nestor had left early with Menelaus. Also, Nestor didn't loot Troy. The whole raising the city and taking slaves thing... 
not a good look for the Greeks and something he didn't really want to be a part of. But you still helped them, like, take the city, right? Telemachus asked. Kind of seemed like the time to be such a conscientious objector was, you know, any time before you helped crack the city like an egg and enable one of the greatest atrocities of the ancient world. <laughs> Nestor laughed. Greatest atrocities of the ancient world. Uh, that is a long list. Doubt we even cracked the top ten. But I wouldn't know, because like I said, didn't do any looting or take any slaves. And I was actually the only hero there who had a fast and safe return. Telemachus hung his head. Nestor grimaced. Oh, hey, sorry, kid. He's probably fine, though, right? Still, if he's not, Telemachus needed to do something about those suitors. He should follow the example of Orestes after the death of Agamemnon. Orestes? Telemachus asked. The blood dripped from Orestes' dagger. It had been so quick. It had been like he was watching someone else do it. Aegisthus, the man who had killed Agamemnon, was dead on the floor. A crumpled, bloody form. Orestes' father had been avenged. He heard a gasp at the door and turned to see his mother. The color drained from her face. His heart beat faster, not completely avenged. His hand held the knife that was still wet with the blood of his mother's lover. Clytemnestra looked on the carnage. This was it, then. This was how it would happen. Orestes strode over to his mother and grabbed her arm, dragging her to the body, forcing her to look. Was this the man? This was the man who stood taller than his father. What was he now? Aegisthus was a snake. Agamemnon was a great man who had suffered for her, went to war for her, and he came home to this treachery. Clytemnestra was calm. She shook herself loose from Orestes' grip. Orestes didn't know what he was talking about. There had been two. Orestes had two siblings, a sister and a half-brother that were no longer in this world because of Agamemnon. When he took Clytemnestra as a captive, as chattel, he couldn't have loose ends. So he murdered Clytemnestra's infant son, tearing him from her chest. Then, when the winds wouldn't pick up at Aulis for his war that he had to go on when Orestes was only a baby, Agamemnon lured his own daughter there, promising her in marriage, and then sacrificed her like an animal. Then, he left. He left Clytemnestra for ten years without a word. They didn't know if he was dead or alive not until the beacons roared to life. And he arrived. And when he arrived, he arrived with a woman, a girl, a daughter of Priam who would replace her after everything. What did Orestes expect her to do? What would have happened to Orestes if Cassandra, the enslaved daughter of Priam, had a boy? So he, the boy with a knife to his mother's throat after tricking his way into the palace, could spare her all the honor talk. What? Fate demanded this? The gods? The gods were fickle. It was warm when you were in the sunlight of their favor, but that just made the shade all the colder. If he shed his mother's blood on this day, if he murdered her, and that's what it was, the hounds of a mother's curse would hunt him down. Orestes hesitated for a moment at his mother's words. 
and steeled himself. You killed and it was a tragedy. Suffer tragedy now. Orestes uttered with the flash of his knife. And he let the body fall onto that of her lover. People rushed in. And Orestes gestured to the two. The two who had killed his father were now dead. Justice had been done. The people neither cheered nor cursed. They looked at the bodies. They looked at Orestes. And they shook their heads. Orestes yelled that it had to be done for his father. It, then, he spotted them. First, it was just one. Then two. Then three. Women, in the back of the group crowding the room. They were shrouded in black, so that Orestes couldn't see their faces. Their hair was snakes, like a gorgon. They pointed crooked fingers at him. Orestes was filled with terror the hounds of a mother's dying curse. The knife rattled on the floor when it fell from his hand. He cried out to Apollo, the god whose word had been so clear mere days before, was now silent, just as his mother had said, right before he killed her. There was nothing else he could do. He turned and ran from the specters. The people, confused, glanced back to where Orestes had been looking and saw nothing. Is that what I'm supposed to imitate? Telemachus asked. Nestor nodded. Yep, family honor above all else, no matter what. But he killed his mom. I like my mom. You're being too literal, Nestor replied. He listened to the gods and defended his father's name. But the gods sent harpy gorgons after him. It seems pretty contradictory, Telemachus said. Sitting back more confused than ever, Nestor shrugged. Like most of his advice, it was hit or miss. Heavy on the miss. He didn't know. He was tired. And he should be getting to bed. He was sorry, again, that he didn't have any news regarding Telemachus's dad. But you know who might know? Menelaus. The guy just got back a few months ago. He had been waylaid in Africa for most of a decade but he had seen more of the world in the past 10 years than Nestor had. Though, really, Nestor had seen more over the course of his long and storied life. Speaking of stories, Mentor, Telemachus's companion and, well, Mentor, cleared his throat. He said that he should be getting back to the ships, and Telemachus should be as well. But Nestor waved his hands in front of his face. Was the old man kidding? No, Telemachus was a guest in his house. He wouldn't sleep on the ships. Furthermore, he could have a chariot to take out tomorrow. To go east. To Sparta. It was like 50 miles away. They could make it in no time. Nestor's own son would accompany him. The men on the ship could stay here and relax. Mentor nodded. Very good. The old man smiled and turned to Telemachus. The boy had his path now. Follow it, and it would lead to his father's return. Telemachus was confused. Okay, how much did Mentor have to drink tonight? Then there was a flash, and a cloak fell to the stone floor. When Telemachus, Nestor, and the others in the hall took their hands from their eyes, a massive eagle was in the place of Mentor. It flapped from the window, 
and flew off into the night. Nestor was awestruck. Athena, in his palace. He had entertained one of the Olympians without even realizing it. Telemachus was truly blessed. Too bad for Athena, though. She flew out before she could hear another one of his stories. Ah, bummer. At least Telemachus was still here. All that talk of harpies reminded him of the time he was sailing on the Argo. It was right after Hercules left them, and they were surrounded by harpies, but real harpies. Not these knockoffs from the ring that Aeschylus conjured from nowhere, but real angry bird women. Telemachus waved his empty goblet to someone, anyone who might be able to help him out. He was going to need more wine. Menelaus ran his finger along the rim of his goblet and sighed. Helen looked over. Oh, here we go. What were riches? Why did he escape the fate of everyone else? Why did he live while they died? His brother, Achilles, the Ajaxes, scores of his own soldiers and Agamemnons. He didn't deserve the feasts, the celebrations. They spent a decade at war. Why was everyone acting like life was normal now? Life would never be normal again. Helen readied a potion she had for nights like this one. One that she slipped into the drinks of her husband and any other soldier who dwelled too long on the past. The potion would only last the evening, and it was already beginning to weaken among some, but it allowed the men some respite from the constant, aching calling of a war long over. She nodded to her serving women, or started to, when Menelaus kept talking. Odysseus even, Odysseus was still out there, on some forgotten island, being held captive by a goddess and Menelaus paused. He noticed someone in attendance at dinner that evening in the giant room, someone whose face lit up at the mention of that name, a face he recognized. Telemachus? For the rest of the evening, Telemachus sat and listened to stories of his father, of the war, of a man who saw an opportunity to turn every situation to his advantage, of a man who never gave up. Menelaus was himself again, like he hadn't been since he left Africa and returned to the land that reminded him of his brother and everything that they had lost. In this boy, Telemachus, a new generation was rising. It was different, sure, but maybe everything was going to be okay. Finally. Menelaus got around to his time in Africa, to the axe he hefted, threatening the old man of the sea, Proteus, who had turned into a tree to try and evade the Spartan king. The old man of the sea showed him the way home, and so much more. He showed Menelaus what had happened, his brother standing before a hearth, and just this sneaking up behind him with a knife, while Cassandra screamed her prophecies outside, and died with him he showed a young man plotting in exile. Proteus showed him what was, Odysseus, weeping on the beach, trying and failing to escape his captor, the beautiful Calypso, doting and cruel, 
the Ithacan king dreaming every night of Penelope, and his heart breaking at the thought of the multitude of days, years, that now separated him from the baby boy he had left at home. Proteus showed Menelaus what would be, of how, of all the men alive today, Menelaus's time would never come. As the man who had won Helen twice, Menelaus would never die. He would enter Elysium, paradise, a soft land of happiness, where there was never snow, where the western wind cooled warm fields, and the heroes that the gods had chosen could live forever in peace and happiness. Menelaus smiled. Telemachus was welcome to stay with him for the time being, but the young man shook his head. No, thank you. After hearing about his father, and knowing that the man was alive, he believed that Odysseus was coming home. And Telemachus? Telemachus had some cleaning to do. Alcinous, the head evil suitor, back on Ithaca, threw a discus. It veered left and crashed down inside the servants' quarters, shattering a vase. Alcinous shrugged. How much pottery did one family need, anyway? Besides, that was going to be his soon, when he married Penelope. A man walked up, and the suitors rose to meet him. He asked if Telemachus was around. Alcinous said no, he left a few days ago. Probably went inland to check on his herds and stuff. The man shook his head. Oh, no, Telemachus actually borrowed a ship from him. Said he was making a quick run to Pylos and Sparta. Should be back soon. Neoman, the ship owner, needed his ship back, though. Any word when he might return? Guys, you're all making this weird, sinister plotting face. Should I? Yeah, I'll come back. Alcinous stomped his foot. That night when they all had too much to drink. The other suitors looked at each other that one night? But Alcinous continued, the one when they fell asleep early. Telemachus left without the approval of the assembly. One week wasn't long enough to assemble a fighting force to drive them out, but it was enough time to let your allies know that you needed help. You know what? Alcinous stepped back and stroked his beard. It would be a shame if, you know, pirates happened to find the young heir to the throne of Ithaca and kill him before he made it home. The men, the suitors, looked at each other. That, why would that be a shame? That would actually solve a ton of problems for them. Asunu said, yes, that's, come on, he was being, that's, he was being sinister. They were going to ambush and murder Telemachus before he made it home. Come on, guys. Subtext. We'll actually see Odysseus for the first time in these episodes, but that will be right after this. All right, well, uh, if no one has anything else, I guess we can wrap up this staff meeting. <sighs> Zeus started and then pinched the bridge of his nose. Athena, no, 
come on, we're not doing this again. Athena said that Odysseus had been on Calypso's island for seven years. His house was overrun with drunk guys. It was time to bring him home. Zeus threw his head back. Look, he liked Odysseus. At least he didn't have anything petty against the guy that would lead him to horribly and irrevocably curse his life, which was saying something. But she brought this up every month. And every month it got vetoed by... Then Zeus looked Poseidon's chair, which was empty. He was, in fact, burning some vacation days out east. Zeus sat up. Oh, shoot. Yeah, sure. Hermes, Zeus said, turning to his son, one of them. Will you go and tell Calypso to knock it off? Let him build a raft and leave? She was being so creepy and forcing someone to be with her when he didn't want to be. Now, if they would excuse him, he was going to do not that. He looked at his wife, Hera, and smiled sheepishly before turning into an eagle and flying off. Amid Cupid-making finger guns, Ares brooding, and Dionysus asking the Olympians if they had had time to check out his podcast yet, Hermes took off like an arrow, skimming the white caps in the wine-dark sea before slowing to a flutter above Calypso's island. When he confronted Calypso, she was not having any of it. Oh, okay, so let me get this straight. When a man wants to take a human, all bets are off. Princesses, queens, common people, anything they want. But when a woman wants to take a single lover, the goddess Calypso started. But Hermes said it wasn't about that. He didn't want to have a conversation about gender disparity in ancient Greece because they would be here until the modern day. Dawn and Orion. The great hunter, Calypso held up an index finger. Hermes rolled his eyes, but she continued. They were happy together. Sure, the sun forgot to rise some days. But who doesn't need a few extra hours of sleep? And what did the gods do to fix that? Have a conversation about responsibility and boundaries? Nope, they sent Artemis the hunter after him, and she shot him. He got to be a constellation, which is actually kind of worse. Because you know who never gets to see the constellations? Don. Hermes tried to open his mouth, but she kept going. Oh, how about Demeter? She lost her daughter for half of a year because Hades abducted her. So she takes solace with Aeson, a young Cretan man. What happened to him? Zeus killed him with a thunderbolt. Sure, there's a version where it was assault, and yet another where Demeter was creeped out that the young man aged, which is problematic in its own right, but the trend remains. And now this. Look, She saved Odysseus. The Olympians didn't even want him. Poseidon has it out for him, and Zeus thunderbolted his ship in broad daylight. They're like getting mad at her for dumpster diving here. If it wasn't trash, why throw it out? Hermes grimaced. That was still a human being? He said that her comparisons were a little off because all those relationships, they were consensual between goddesses and humans. Odysseus was her prisoner. So what she was saying was that because the male gods raped people, it was okay for her to do the same? She's kind of undermining her own argument here. Calypso sighed. Fine, but she wasn't sending him away. If he wanted to leave, he could make his own ship. Hermes was glad she came around. So where was he? Calypso smiled. He was in his man cave. It 
was a cave that he escaped to after she tried to force-feed him nectar of ambrosia so he would be alive forever. He thought she didn't know about it, but in a healthy relationship, and also whatever this was, it can be important for people to have their own spaces. Odysseus shuddered when he heard the footsteps. Tears ran down his beard. He clenched his jaw as he sat among the rocks. It was noontime, too early for her to come for him, to take him back to her home, to force him to... He trailed off. Calypso touched down on the beach and lifted up his chin so he was looking her in the eye. He learned long ago that it was better not to fight it. She said he could go home. She loved him, but she could see that he was a, a little unhappy here. So, out of the goodness of her heart, and not because of an edict from people that could lightning bolt said heart right now, she was letting him go. Odysseus looked at her side-eyed. What, what new game was this? that they were playing kind of messed up she shook her head no game she would help him with the timber and give him supplies she was letting him sail away it was almost a week before the boat was ready and Odysseus was cautious but optimistic as the size of the raft grew and Calypso arrived with provisions for his trip he didn't breathe until he was truly out on the open ocean and out of her power for the first time in seven years, he was on his way home. He was free. Poseidon unlocked his door and threw his keys down. He looked at his mail. He looked at the suitcases full of laundry he had to do. The answering machine next to his trimline phone blinked with countless voicemails because this was the 13th century BC when people still had landlines. He sighed. The worst part about vacation was having to come home. He looked out his window to the oceans of the world and saw Odysseus sitting back on a raft, the wind pulling him from exile. What was all this? Poseidon barked. He took PTO for once and the one project he had going on was just ended? This guy blinded his boy, his sweet, beautiful boy that he had fathered and never met. This sort of aggression must not stand. He booted up his trident, pointed it at the sea, and summoned a hurricane. Odysseus washed up naked on the beach. He was getting real tired of washing up on stuff. He had been swimming for the past two days straight before being flayed on the sharp rocks of the first island he had passed. All in all, though, better than another night on Calypso's island. Out at sea, after the hurricane winds hit and snapped his mast, a goddess appeared, a Nereid by the name of Aino, a sea goddess who took pity on him. She told Odysseus to abandon his ship 
and hold on to her cloak to be able to stay afloat for a few days. He, having just survived a seven-year encounter with a goddess, was a little skeptical, but as the wind somehow picked up, he realized that he didn't have a choice. He dove for the darkened sea. And truly, Ino's cloak did keep him from drowning. Didn't keep the rocks from scraping his skin off or breaking his bones. That would have been nice. Still, he had land underfoot that wasn't Calypso's. So, despite the waves of pain and bleeding from everywhere, he climbed under a particularly thick plant that would block a downpour to find a grass bed made for him. Which, yeah, was from Athena and is also the lowest effort consolation prize. Yeah, all your friends are dead, your ships are wrecked, you spent almost a decade as a slave to a goddess, had your skin flayed off and your bones broken, but here's a grass bed that's so shady that it's absolutely full of mosquitoes. Night. Speeding from this place, Athena had to make sure that, now that he was free of Calypso, Odysseus had a path home. That path home obviously included beautiful girls playing bald naked in a river. Nausicaa, princess of the Phaeacians, had a visitor in the night, someone who told her that the time was nigh to find a husband, and to do that, she needed to do all of her dirty laundry. Both of these obviously added up to a naked volleyball game. While their clothes were drying, they brought out the ball to throw around, a ball that happened to bounce into a particularly dense thicket. They heard an ow and a grunting. Odysseus rose, holding their ball, sleep still in his eyes. Did someone lose this? The women screamed and bolted. Odysseus grimaced. What was their deal? He looked down to his scraped and naked man body. Oh, yeah. When the chaos and the splashing subsided, only one remained, one who had been emboldened by Athena. Nausicaa, the princess of the Phaeacians. Odysseus, happy to see anyone, debated internally whether or not to rush at this naked girl and grab her knees, begging her for aid in a passage home, or to use his words from a distance. Thankfully, the wily Odysseus was wily and didn't rush naked over to the woman and grab her, instead letting his, quote, soft words fall. Maybe pioneering the did it hurt when you fell from heaven pickup line, he led by asking her if she was divine. I mean, he kind of gets a pass because 100% of the women he met in the last decade were. Still, he talked about how hushed he was by her beauty, which had no equal, he said, probably looking over his shoulder a half dozen times for an angry goddess because comments like that were what started the war he was having such a hard time getting home from. She looked on this strange naked man who had interrupted their equally naked ball game and sighed. He was obviously no threat. She didn't see any evil in him, and she was seeing pretty much all of him. His bad luck didn't mean anything. Really great and awesome and not at all frustrating Zeus, she said, doled out fortune on good and bad men as it pleased him. What a sane, fun world we live in with that guy in charge. She said she would help him after they both got dressed. After Odysseus bathed and found a tunic, he emerged to Nausicaa, herding her ladies-in-waiting back together. She told them that she had absolutely no reason to believe so, but this guy was a good guy. She turned back to Odysseus. He could come into the city, but he couldn't arrive with her. There would be talk, 
if she walked in next to a handsome stranger, they would leave. But he should wait an hour and follow them. When he entered the city, he was to ask for her mother, the queen. She was the far wiser of the two rulers. And she was. Odysseus arrived in the city, shrouded from its inhabitants, protected by Athena. If this sounds reminiscent of when Aeneas arrived in Carthage, well, that's because the Aeneid was referencing this exact scene, minus the queen falling for Odysseus. For the first time since Circe, Odysseus was able to breathe. He didn't tell the people of his problems, but of the last seven years of his imprisonment with Calypso, and that was enough to earn Odysseus the princess Nausicaa's hand in marriage over late-night cups of wine with the king. Odysseus was polite, not wanting to offend his hosts, but he only had one goal in mind, Ithaca. I'm not sure if Odysseus knew this, but Corfu, where some think the Phoenicians could have been, is only like 50-ish miles north up the coast of Greece from Ithaca. He was just about the closest he had ever been. If he could help it, he would keep his identity secret and make it home. But then he was invited to a fancy dinner. The band there, with their lutes and flutes and drums, took a request. Stuff about Troy! The lead singer nodded his head. It was only a matter of time until someone requested that one. It was only the number one hit song for seven years running. He cleared his throat. Okay, here's Stuff About Troy. As the singer sang Stuff About Troy, and the people lit their torches and waved them back and forth, way more commitment than a lighter or a phone, the ballad started to wind down, and in the quiet parts, they heard the sobbing. The band stopped playing. The party stopped dead. All eyes were on Odysseus. His face in his hands. Tears poured on the table. He didn't even care. He was so caught up in his memories of Agamemnon and Menelaus, Achilles, Diomedes, his countless dead friends, the years at sea, Penelope and Telemachus. The king settled down next to him and put his hand on the man's back. He got a feeling that there was more to this traveler than the stranger let on. Odysseus wiped his eyes and nodded. There was more. A lot more. Odysseus told the story of his journey. The Lotus Eaters, the Cyclopes, Circe, the Sirens, the Cows of the Sun, Calypso, and finally, the Phaeacians. In their shining palace, he finished by telling them that this wasn't the end of the story. He had to get back to Ithaca, to the boy that was now a man, to the wife he hadn't seen in 18 years, with only his prayers that she had remained faithful. But didn't you like cheat on her with Circe? A hand went up in the back. No, not even gonna address that. Just kind of feels like a double standard, but okay. The king offered Odysseus a ride home on their almost supernaturally fast ships. But Odysseus refused. Poseidon was still out to get him. If they helped Odysseus, they ran the risk of sharing that ire. <laughs> the king laughed. They had been faithful servants of Poseidon since the city's founding. They relied on the god for their safety and livelihood. 
he wouldn't turn on them and destroy them for one act of hospitality to a fellow king. The gods were just. Well, he would, and they weren't. When Poseidon discovered their kindness, he vowed to cut off the Phaeacians from their port, with a mountain, and to never show favor to them again. Petty doesn't even begin to describe it. But silver lining for Odysseus was that, under the shadow of night, he flew along the waves. The ride was so peaceful and smooth that he fell asleep. When he awoke, they were no longer moving. Mountains blotted out the stars as hearth fires dotted the cliffs off in the distance. Odysseus trembled as his foot touched land. Touched Ithaca. After 18 years, after leaving with Menelaus and Palamedes, after the deaths of thousands, the fall of a city, the sinking of his ships, the deaths of his friends, he had arrived. Odysseus was home. That's where we're going to leave it this time. The next time we revisit the Odysseus story, we'll end it and close probably the biggest, most important chapter of Greek mythology. One of the early criticisms I got for my tellings of the Greek stories was that I made Hercules cry. Not me personally, I'm not that mean or strong, but that I made the character weep over his family, the one that Hera made him murder with his own hands. I like to try to humanize the characters and as someone with a family that I love, that would be horrifically traumatizing. The person wrote that it was out of character to make a Greek hero cry. More people chimed in, it was on Twitter, saying that no, it wasn't out of character, and they provided examples. And I think that's where we ultimately landed. But one thing I appreciate about today's story is that guys are crying all over the place. The war, the Trojan War, was traumatizing. Menelaus, having come back to his own kingdom, is now dealing with survivor's guilt and probably PTSD. I'm reluctant to diagnose that because I'm in no way qualified and he's fictional, but Helen has to drug him to help him and others forget the horrors of war. And even that's hit a point of diminishing returns. Odysseus breaks down at the mere mention of the war. If the Iliad is a story about the brutality of war, the Odyssey is a journey through its lingering consequences. Unafraid to show that this war, that they had won, and which was the source of glory for Odysseus, Menelaus, and others, is also a wound that, eight years later, is still healing. Next week, there are two stories, one grim story and one from China, about death and the relationships that transcend it. If you'd like to support the show, there is still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a one-piece Thanos men's swimsuit, a purple leotard swimsuit explicitly for men, where you have the grinning face of the mad titan on your stomach, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't make half the pool party go find something else to do at the site of your awkward swimsuit. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Agagwe from the eastern coast of Africa. If you've ever seen the Agagwe, congrats. That's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Also, say goodbye to your reputation as a 19th-century British monster hunter and colonial administrator. Though, 
That sort of thing hasn't really aged well anyway. It's been seen and documented three times from those outside of the region, and it's reportedly a two to four foot tall, woolly, naked humanoid. If your garden is getting out of hand, all you need to do is leave some food and beer out. Pretty good shot that all you'll have show up as raccoons, but it's also possible that the agagwe will show up and do some weeding and pruning. Keep that beer and food flowing, and you might end up with a bit more than just plump tomatoes. If it trusts you, it will get some meat, porridge, and milk from a stone that it carries around. I don't get it, and I don't know how stone porridge tastes, but that's just versatile. They leave it for their favorite person. So if you find porridge or meat outside, you can smile with the knowledge that you have a friend somewhere. In what takes kind of a dark turn, apparently, if a child went missing and blood is discovered at the scene, it's said that the Agagwe has taken it. So yeah, part-time gardener, great lunch packer, and oh yeah, occasional kidnapper. Thankfully, the last documented sighting was in the 1950s. So, bad for your garden that's getting out of hand, but good for pretty much everything else. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thanks again to Acorn TV for sponsoring the show. Acorn TV is a commercial free streaming service rooted in British television. Find cleverly written and visually striking shows you haven't seen before. It's thousands of hours of refreshing content at a fraction of the cost of most streaming services. From both of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code LEGENDS to get your first 30 days for free. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>